I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome once again to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is your host as ever, Matt Dixon. And this podcast is all about performance. And today's episode is about performance. Yes, indeed. We have an intriguing and interesting discussion with one Brad Stolberg, a good friend of mine, is a regular columnist for Outside Magazine, the co-author of the book Peak Performance. And we have a very interesting discussion today. I think Brad has a wonderful perspective on the landscape of improving performance globally across many disciplines. And you may have listened to my coaching talk a few weeks ago with Steve Magnus, elite running coach. Well, Brad is Steve's co-author. But today's episode is very different. What we're going to do today is focus on just a few words. And those words lead into all sorts of discussion and roundtable about the topic of performance. I think you're going to enjoy it. Now, before we get into the discussion, I don't expect you to remember all that we talk about today. So you can always grab the book, Peak Performance. Again, authors Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. I highly recommend it. It's on my bookshelf. But also today, Brad has generously provided two cheat sheets for us, high value education around the central thesis of he and Steve's book. You can grab them via the link in the show notes. So feel free to put the notepad aside and just embrace yourself and immerse yourself in the listening of our discussion. But before we dive into that chat, let's get to word of the week. We like the way he thinks, serious with the wings. Word of the week this week, it is tempting to go after one of the words that we discuss in the conversation a little later in the show, but we're going to broaden the range. This week, the word of the week is going to be elevate. What do I mean by elevate? Well, I was challenged to find a single word that really would represent what I want to talk about this week, because the focus is about your best route to elevate your own performance when surrounded by others. When I look at my professional athletes that I coach and have coached previously, the ones that I think I've enjoyed working with the most, but also have potentially been the most successful over the long term, are those that work to not only excel themselves, but have the courage and I would say wisdom to try and help bring others along with the journey and help others elevate their own performance. Some athletes that I see, see competition as an opportunity for disdain and they do all they can to defeat in training, limit other success and push down. It's their own selfish individual quest for glory. Unfortunately, I think that this is not only short term thinking, I also think it's self defeating. I believe that power comes when all raise. So rather than acting like a bunch of crabs in a bucket, clawing on the backs of each other, trying to get over the lip of the bucket, instead, real power comes when we join together and raise together, holding each other accountable, supporting each other's quest, ensuring that we're nurturing each of our collective and individual goals towards elevation of performance. As counterintuitive as it seems, giving 
leads to your own individual performance evolution across the board. Far from limiting, it's empowering. If you want to really understand this, I'd encourage you to go and read articles around the great runner who actually I don't know personally, Shalane Flanagan. Shalane's an American distance runner, Olympic medalist, New York Marathon winner last year, and many more accomplishments. But almost all of her training partners have gone on to achieve individual great success as well. And in part, that's due to the culture and support that she fosters within an individual sport. It's one of nurturing, collaboration and support. Everybody wins. And I believe that's a big part of why she has accelerated. Again, I don't know her, but I think it's a wonderful example of how elevating it can be to actually have a team mindset, even though you're in an individual sport. So if you want to thrive and elevate your performance, Just don't think about it in terms of yourself. Instead, embrace your competition. Challenge yourself and challenge others around you with similar goals. It will only help elevate your performance by elevating your mindset to competition. The time to embrace direct competition is on race day and race day only. And that is when the best man or woman will surely win. Now, let's get on with the meat and potatoes. All right, guys, so here we go, the meat and potatoes this week and a conversation that I am excited about. A couple of weeks ago, we had on elite coach and author Steve Magnus. Well, this time, we get the sidekick on the the co-author of Peak Performance, Brad Storberg. Brad, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's uh, it's also very exciting for me to have this conversation. Really like what you do. Well, let's do your dirty bio first. So you are a researcher, a writer, a speaker, and a coach of executives on performance. You are, as mentioned, the co-author of Peak Performance, a book that sits proudly on my bookshelf, of course. And um, also, I think many people will know you as a very regular com- columnist at Outside Magazine. There are many great articles in there. We are going to dive in today and we're going to talk about multiple things. We're going to talk about you a little bit because that's good fun. We're going to talk about your book and and most importantly, dive into the details around performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about mental illness, which is going to come a little bit later in the episode. Let's go back a little bit to start. And I can't remember how many years ago that it it was that we met. I I remember that we met when you first were moving out to to the Bay Area, to San Francisco, I think. And, And at the time you were... A rather obsessed triathlete, is that right? Yeah, that is right. That would have been, oh, about six and a half, seven years ago, maybe even eight years ago now. Goodness me. It feels like a uh, a long time ago. Why don't we use that as a catalyst then? I'd love to know. I'd, I'd love to know with all the guests, the, the background, uh, really basic stuff, where you're from, where you grew up, your family, your education. Just give us a, a couple of minutes on that. Sure. So I grew up in uh, in Michigan in a suburb of Detroit. Um, pretty much bread and butter, middle-class childhood. Uh, very fortunate that I have two loving parents who are still together and a younger brother who's four years my junior. Um, was quite close to him growing up and now he's my best friend in the world. So very fortunate there again. Um, I went to undergraduate school at the University of Michigan and I studied uh, what they called organizational behavior which is really a mix of psychology, economics, and politics, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe a little sociology there as well. 
then following school, I went to work for McKinsey & Company, which is one of the big three international consulting firms. And I was at McKinsey for two-ish years. Uh, knew that I wanted to go back to graduate school to learn more about health and performance um, and had the opportunity to, to work in the White House before going back to graduate school. So I worked at the National Economic Council just for a short stint for three months, uh, went back to Ann Arbor, got a master's in public health, and uh, after that moved out to the Bay Area where initially I was doing full-time consulting, similar to what I was doing at McKinsey, um, only in an in-house for a large healthcare system. Uh, but over time, my passion for writing and performance picked up and the amount of consulting work I did kind of went down in parallel, and now I spend most of my time, uh, like you said, writing, researching, coaching, and really just always thinking about uh, the same types of topics that you do. And having going uh, going through the journey at McKinsey, you certainly know what it's like to be time starved. That's that's not an easy passage for for any employee. There is uh, is the reputation, and I've I've worked with uh, many uh, McKinsey consultants as well in a in a coaching sense. So uh, um, I'm sure that was. Uh, an experience in itself, eh? Yeah, it was. It's you know, I joke with uh, with my co-author Steve Magnus, who, like you mentioned, elite running coach, and also was an elite runner himself. A lot of a hundred mile weeks at McKinsey. <laughs> so, so were you? Let's talk about your athletics. Were you were you an athlete growing up, recreational or, or otherwise? So I was. Um, I played the more traditional team power sports growing up. So my my two best sports were basketball and football. Uh, feels like a fat past life, but I was actually as the captain of uh, the varsity football team at my high school and was a decent high school football player. I got recruited to some D2 and D3 schools, but ultimately decided that uh, I wanted the, the big university experience and was nowhere near good enough to play at Michigan. Well, yeah, I was going to say, you, you got the uni- you got the uni- university experience at Michigan, I would say. That's a fantastic school and, and obviously a great stadium there. Um, and what about writing? When did, you, when did you first develop a passion for that specifically? So initially when I was 17... Uh, more recently, I'd say seven, eight years ago. Uh, it's a very circuitous path. In high school, I applied to Medill, which is Northwestern's journalism school, mm-hmm. uh, very prestigious program, and I didn't get in. And I remember thinking at the time, well, okay, I, I didn't get in, so I'm not going to be a writer. I'll go to Michigan and study organizational psychology. Um, and then, of course, looking back on that, it's kind of ironic because here I am spending most of my time um, my time writing. I would say that I never lost the the love for the craft of telling a story. Um, even though I didn't go to Medill, I'd almost argue that McKinsey and Company is great training to be a nonfiction writer because a McKinsey and Company study is very, very similar to writing a nonfiction column or book. Sure. Um, you kind of start with a problem statement or an area you want to investigate. You research the crap out of it. You talk to experts. You come up with a coherent, cohesive narrative. You tell the story. You mention how you might be wrong, and that's very similar to nonfiction writing. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. Well, well, let's dovetail off of that and let's let's go into our major topic today, which is performance. And and I ask this question with with a bit of context of myself because I'm a, I'm a coach, obviously, and when I when I talk about the purple patch methodology it's it's very obvious that that methodology emerged out of yes my background as an athlete my background 
educationally as an exercise physiologist and and the previous coaching experiences both in swimming and triathlon before I launched Purple Patch but a huge element of the Purple Patch methodology is is rooted in my own experiences with deep fatigue and and essentially Mm. what I had to do is have a forced review of the landscape of my sport triathlon so with that in mind, I'm really interested in how you got interested on the subject of performance and whether it was from sort of a negative lens, seeing struggles or your own struggles or, or in the pursuit of, of wanting better, wanting to see better. So how do great performers succeed? Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, it, it makes total sense. For me, I think it was almost a marriage of those those two things that you mentioned. So following uh, my time at McKinsey, I was feeling pretty burnt out. And granted, that's not necessarily physical performance, although you're definitely physically fatigued from work like that, but it was more psychic um, burnout. So just cognitively and emotionally pretty spent. And it made me realize that is there a way to achieve performance, peak performance, whatever you want to call it, and do it in a more sustainable manner? So you not only burn bright, but you also burn long. Um that's kind of coming at it from the negative end. And then the positive end, there are individuals both in sport and outside of sport that I really admired back then and still do now that seem to be able to really get the most out of themselves, um, national class, world class at what they do and do it year in, year out. And at least seem, and some of these people I know personally are quite happy. So it was a, a little bit of wanting to learn more about where I went wrong look at people who have done things what I consider quite well and almost selfishly try to figure out a recipe for myself that then has become a career, which is how do I help others understand a recipe that would work for them. And, and a large part of the platform of the career was the was the book, Peak Performance. And and you co-wrote that with Steve Magnus. So how did you guys meet? What was the, what was the genesis of that book? And yeah, Steve's a running coach. You're a McKinsey consultant and, and much more beside and evolved, moved to the Bay Area. And I'd love to know how you you sort of decided to come up with this. Yeah, it's a wild story. So I, I, I'm also a, a, an amateur athlete at best. Um, but, you know, when I first reached out to Steve maybe five years ago, uh, I was, like you mentioned, a, an obsessive endurance athlete. And I really enjoyed Steve's blog. He's got a popular blog called The Science of Running, where he just totally geeks out on just that, the science of running. Uh, So we started emailing back and forth around some of his blog posts. This is when I was starting to write for Outside Magazine. And eventually I ended up interviewing him for a column in Outside. And in addition to the interview for that story, we had a really good, expansive conversation. So then we kind of just became pen pals. Uh, He would see a study and email it to me to get my take. I'd be writing a story, want his opinion on something. He'd have a coaching issue, wanted an outside perspective, yada, yada, yada. Um, We eventually developed the trust where, oh, about three years ago now, I had this idea for a book, and I figured Steve's the perfect person to run it by. So I sent Steve uh, just a summary of the idea and, and a few notes and said, hey, man, like really batting this around, a few people have encouraged me to write a book. Do you think a book like this would sell? And... He responded like within two minutes and he said, you're not going to believe this. I've been batting around very similar ideas and here are 90 pages of notes to prove it. He didn't write those 90 pages in two minutes. Two minutes, <laughs> right. So I, 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 I looked through the notes and there was a good 60 to 75% overlap 
So we quickly hopped on the phone. We hadn't met in person. It's like online dating. It's very funny. Um, we quickly hopped on the phone and we decided that we should just team up and do this together. Um, you know, we later learned from the people in the industry that it's really hard to write a book with a co-author. And are you sure you don't want to do this individually? And because Steve and I come from non-traditional writing backgrounds, really athletic backgrounds, we're like, that's nonsense. Of course, it's going to be better if we write it together. So we kind of told everyone that advised us not to write it together, no. And um, we wrote this book together. And forget the book. We love the process of writing. And, and out of it, now I have a collaborator that I, or excuse me, a collaborator that I feel quite close to. Which is fantastic. Well, we're going to talk about the book, but I'm going to go about it a completely different way. And what you're going to do, I want you to imagine that we're, we're standing side by side and we're going to go over a field that is full of rabbit holes. And I think we're going to go down a few rabbit holes here all in the pursuit of the discussion of performance. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about the book to give some context, but then we're just going to focus on individual words. And I've chosen six or seven words that I'm just going to say to you, and we're going to start a discussion around each of those words. And they're all grounded. They're all sort of elements that I feel come out in the book that are worthy of deeper discussion. And so, but before we dive into that, I thought it might be a fun and very novel way to go about a, a podcast discussion. I first establish, what do you mean by peak performance? It's a very important question for everything else we're going to discuss, huh? Exactly. <laughs> so I, I like to define peak performance, it, getting the most out of yourself in a sustainable manner and feeling good as you do it. That word sustainable is really important, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it's kind of like I said, I think just about anyone can work their ass off and burn really bright for a short period of time, but it takes a lot more wisdom uh, to be able to get the most out of yourself for a long period of time. Super. So give, give us the mission of the book. What are you hoping to achieve when someone reads the book? So I think the mission is really to, to help readers avoid some of the pitfalls that I stumbled upon in my experience of, of burning out at McKinsey. And then also Steve had a very parallel experience as a runner um, of burning out. So I think when we wrote the book, we, we really set out to try to give people some tools and tactics uh, so that they could achieve their best, but do it in a way that, like you said, is more sustainable. It's a very important word uh, for both of us. It's funny when 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 you guys were going through the process and and for disclosure, uh, you uh, you interviewed me for the book specifically around the topic of recovery. But I had never met Steve, and and I the the only way I knew Steve was actually through some of the recent press at that time around him and his experience with a, with a, some different running programs. And suddenly, I was sitting in the the kitchen with uh, with yourself, who I knew pretty well, and uh, and this coach Steve Magnus. And it seemed like we'd leave, led in many ways parallel lives. And then I couldn't believe that he'd gone through such episodes of burnout that was was so so similar to my experiences. And of course, perhaps unsurprisingly, while inhabiting very different sports, our mindset on coaching seems to be very very par parallel in, in in many many areas. Yeah, I remember that conversation well. Uh, it was neat just to, to, to have the three of us sit down and be on a very similar wavelength, but come at this, like you said, from three, three very distinct areas. It really was. Now, I think it's important that we add context for people that have not read the book, because look, I'm a triathlon coach. This is a performance podcast that is is about performance, yes, in sport, but extending into health, life, work performance. Steve's a running coach. And this is not just about peak performance 
in sport by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, one of the things that really struck me about the book was some of the the characters that you talked about. And I remember specifically a drummer and the the process that he went through to perform when he got on stage. How did you go through choosing some of the performers? What was the mindset there about sort of choosing the people that you're going to be writing about? So when you write a book like this, there there are two approaches to take, and we, we stood firmly on the one that we chose. So you can find good individual stories and then try to find science to back up those stories, or you can find really good, firm science and then use stories to bring that science to life. And we did the latter. We wanted everything in this book to be evidence-based, backed by very, very rigorous research. Um, so we'd actually developed the principles, the three kind of themes, sections of our book, simply from looking at the science. But then we said, okay, science is one thing, but this needs to hold true in practice. So we went out and we started interviewing people, like you said, across fields. We spoke with entrepreneurs, musicians, visual artists, um, certainly athletes, a mathematician, scientists, and we went in and we said, tell us about how you do what you do. And these people were all national or world-class at what they do. And sure enough, the vast majority of them mentioned at least some component of what we had found in our scientific exploration. Uh, so then, like I said, we wove in those stories to try to bring the science to life. But really, our criteria for interviewing those people were, <laughs> did we have a, a connection or a way in to speak with them? And were they national or world-class at what they did? Perfect. Well, at least I, I made I was interviewed, so I, but I, you always said to me I was regional. So, uh, so yeah. <laughs> but you just I knew think me. You're you national me, yeah. class. Oh, no, thank you. Credit. Thank you very much. Lower national class. It's I appreciate. Not world class. <laughs> I want to see you and Brett Sutton run against each other. Oh, and I think that yeah. Well, we shall see. Maybe one day. <laughs> Maybe one day. So let's um let's go to the words. So I I have a few words, and. I've got a feeling that we're going to go down some rabbit holes, as I mentioned. So I'm just going to name, say one word, and I'm going to get you to talk about it. And and I bet that I have some thoughts coming back at you. So uh, we'll try and spend two or three minutes at each word at most, but this might end up being a long podcast, if not. So here's the first word. And uh, you, you talk about this a lot, both in your writing as well as in the book, balance. An illusion. And what I mean by that is I think there's so much societal and cultural pressure, at least here in the States, to strive for balance. And I think that people hear that and they think that every day you should have just the right amount of time for family, just the right amount of time for work, just the right amount of time for your hobbies, just the right amount of sleep, and each day should be like perfectly balanced. And I think that if you pursue that, two things happen. You either end up having a life where you go through the motions and it's just from one thing to the next, not really pursuing anything passionately or deeply, or you end up completely burning out because you are pursuing things passionately and deeply, but you're trying to do everything at once. So when I think of balance, I don't at all think about having this perfectly structured day, perfectly structured week, perfectly structured life where the various pieces are in equal proportion. I like to zoom out. And I think about it much more over the course of a decade or a lifetime. And that can absolutely involve periods of going all in on something. Um, I've absolutely. written about this. I've thought about this a lot. I actually think the times when people tend to report being happiest and most fulfilled are the times when they're least balanced. It's when you're falling in love, 
when you're trying to make an Olympic team, even as an age grouper, you're really going for Kona in sport, or you're a founder of a new company, you're starting Purple Patch as a business, right? These are not balanced times, but they're times when people feel really alive. The, the phrase I sometimes or, or often say is um, unachievable utopia. That's uh, when people say, I'm trying to find more balance. It's like you cannot achieve this utopian state. It's, it's not quest. And in fact, excellence, which is, uh, which is a word I'm, I'm going to ask you. I don't want to, I don't want to give away too many of the words to you in advance, but excellence is unachievable in a state of this theoretical balance. I think it, it balance aligns with mediocrity in many ways. Um, yeah, you, can, I, you, know, you, you mentioned excellence and, and maybe we hop in there a bit because I think that in a long time ago in a conversation we shared that we both are fond of a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Yep. And excellence, right? That's a recurring theme through that book. And the author makes exactly that point that if you want excellence and excellence isn't just winning a medal or, or placing in your age group or getting promoted at work. Excellence can also be a loving relationship, raising a child. Uh, the more that you care about something, the more excellence you'll get out. But like you said, you can't care deeply about everything because there's just not enough. There, you don't have enough energy. There aren't enough hours in the day. It, it, exactly, and I and it, absolutely agree. I want to come back to balance for a moment because one of the things you said I think is worthy of extra exp, extra exploration as well. Well, you said people are often happy and happiest when they are on very focused quests, essentially. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, use my own language, but very focused times of dedication. I think it's important to note as well, in my opinion, that doesn't mean those periods of focus mean the dismantling of the other institutions of your life. And so you can be all in on, in my case, trying to qualify for Hawaii, for example, but it shouldn't be, and there is not balance there necessarily. It's a, a very focused task, but it shouldn't be at the dismantling of your health or your relationships and everything else. And I think that that's an important distinction because it's, it's always a ratio of focus ultimately. Totally. And I think that it's easy to tell yourself a story that you're still maintaining relationships in other areas of life, but in practice – too many people um, kind of let that down as they're pursuing something all in. It, I think it's also, it's very important to, to make sure that you're carving out time for just joy. And it's really easy for type A pushers that want to achieve to find meaning. And in, in it's, it's a Greek term called eudaimonia. So the kind of happiness that comes from doing some type of hard thing. And maybe they get 99% of their happiness from that and only 1% from just experiencing joy. And I'm young. I'm only 31. But even in my 31 years, I've kind of reversed my thinking on that. I used to be, yup, like meaning, do hard things. That's the path to fulfillment. I still think that's true. But now I shoot for more of like an 80-20 relationship. Because if you're always just so serious and pushing, eventually you're going to get to a point where you're like, what's the point of all this? Like you have to, to carve in time to experience joy. And that can be through relationships. That can be through having a couple beers, even though you're trying to hit race weight. You know, at the end of the day, you got to have those times where you can, you can sit back and experience joy. It's, at, it's actually essential for the, the, uh, the actual point of your focus so let's use an athletic context. If you are driving for something and you are wholly focused or if you're starting a business and it consumes so much of your your passion, your dedication, your time, 
those those parts of stepping back and removing yourself and creating in your phrase or word joy is a critical element to facilitate acceleration and success in that place of focus you cannot do it if you are wholly in fact it is a part of i I have got got asked the question what is all in and all in for something doesn't mean absolute and that, that that's a that's a counterintuitive phrase but in my mind all in if you are all in and you're going to do it sustainably and you're going to ultimately be successful you have to carve out time for yourself you have to carve out time for others and you have to remove yourself from whatever that pursuit is otherwise it's unhealthy obsession totally agree so all right we're going to go to a uh, to another one so we we we, cu- we covered off on excellence a little bit let's go to um let's go to to this word self-awareness Mm. Did you intentionally use that after balance? I did. <laughs> yeah, so I think we, we might be on the same wavelength here. Um, we'll have to see. So I think that self-awareness is, if, if, if someone is going to be shooting for a value, I, forget someone, if I'm shooting for a value, I would rather shoot for self-awareness than balance. Because I think what self-awareness implies is what you just said. It's being able to step back and know deep down inside, is this what I really want to be doing? Am I devoting my time and energy to the things that matter most to me? What am I going to think five years, 10 years, 20 years from now? And it's really hard to be able to step back, and I use the word objectivity, and I think that's exactly it, to have some objectivity. Because when you're in the moment, again, in your case, in the case of your listeners, when you're on the cusp of qualifying for Hawaii, there's this huge inertia around that. And it's really easy just to get stuck in the, uh, swept up, excuse me, in in, in the storm of inertia. But you kind of have to step back and view the storm as one component of a greater life. And then ask yourself, do I want to be devoting this much time to it? And that answer changes from year to year. Sometimes that's probably yes. But other times you might say, wow, like I've got two kids uh, you know, I've got a sick parent. Like I need, I need to have the self-awareness to know when to pull back. Um, so I, I think that that is the penultimate value for really driven people that like to push. I think you have to marry that drive with some self-awareness. A- a- absolutely. And I think it's also important to add that those types of decisions are not pass fail. And, um, the, people tie in with so much of their identity with their pursuits let's call it that that their chosen pursuits whether it's business whether it's mm-hmm. sport whatever it might be and so i think many people have a hard time even if deep down they're self-aware they they have a, a hard time facing uh an objective decision-making process because their identity is tied to that so much yeah for sure and, and this is hard i mean the things that we're talking about this, these are hard. Like I mentioned, I wrote peak performance for myself more than anyone. Uh, I don't shoot 100% on these things. I struggle mightily to really maintain good self-awareness. Um, big part of my identity is in my thinking and my writing. And that is a trap that I have to look out for because it's very easy for me to get swept up into that um, at the expense of other things in my life that when I do step back with more neutral eyes, I realize are equally as if not more important. 
Now I'm going to add, it's, it's, it's very true, and by the way, we shouldn't even be pursuing 100% because it's unattainable, but uh, we, we should embrace our flaws as well. But I'm going to marry self-awareness, the word, with, with another one of our words we've already gone over, excellence. I think self-awareness is a critical component of the journey of excellence itself. And, and what I mean by that is I always talk about the active participant. So I'm going to shift the, the lens that we're looking on that word self-awareness a little bit. I think it's critical for anyone that is pursuing that needs someone like a coach. So let's let's stay with an athletic mindset for a while. I think a huge component of athletic success when you're pursuing your, your own brand of excellence, whatever it is, is to develop a very keen sense of self-awareness. And I always talk about it in terms of being an active participant in your journey. You cannot just be told what to do and go and execute. You have to actually really understand what you're doing and as you go through, maintain a high degree of self-awareness of how you're operating relative to the other components of your life, which I think is a really important component. In fact, that's, the, that's one of the golden eggs of when I work with mm-hmm. some of my pro athletes. Those that have great self-awareness are so often the ones that overperform and are great racers because mm-hmm. they have this great self-management ability. Mm-hmm. And it might be leading into the race where they just have this awareness to say, I don't need to push quite as hard. doesn't matter what the coach says. I'm going to hold off. And there's this awareness, conscious or subconscious, if sometimes it's, it can be either or both. But they have this self-awareness that enables them to move towards excellence. So a, 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 what this brings to mind is a, a, a close friend and mentor of mine, a guy named Mike Joyner, who's a, a physiologist at the Mayo Clinic. He, he often talks about how the best endurance athletes are all secret Zen mystics. And I think what he's saying is exactly what you're saying. It's this just sense of letting things be in the right place. And the right place is a constantly moving target. But if, you're, if you have the self-awareness to see that target, then things tend to be in the right place. And when things are in the right place, you perform well. And therefore, it is a wonderful bridge to my next word. Or two words in this case, quantified self. <laughs> it's the <laughs> almost the antithesis of what we're talking about here. The quantified self, great, great buzz phrase, um, measurement metrics, everything that go into it. What, what, what's your reaction when you hear that phrase? So I, I, I think my reaction is it depends. <laughs> so the the quantified self, like you said, the notion of tracking everything and measuring everything. Um, for a while, I would have said, like, rubs me the wrong way. But now I'm, I'm, I'm more in the middle. And, and I'd say, like, it depends. And it depends on a lot of things. Um, the first is, is, is the thing that you're, me- like, is the technology that you're using, A, accurate? B, is it measuring what you actually want to measure? And C, do you understand the data that it's giving you? So let's use heart rate variability as an example. There are apps, and I'm not going to name any names that I have demoed, that are supposed to be a great indicator of recovery based on one's heart rate variability. I wore this app, these these apps, there are multiple, um, they go on your wrist. And at the same time, I wore a polar heart rate monitor, which I know based on all kinds of testing is about 98% accurate against an echocardiogram. So they're pretty accurate. Yep. There was a good 20% variance from the thing on my wrist 
to the echo, or excuse me, not to the echo, to the heart rate monitor. Yep. And this is even when I was sleeping. So if you can't get heart rate right, how are you going to get heart rate variability, which is the space in between heart rates right? So first off, it's disqualified because it's not accurate. Second off, even if it was accurate, your heart rate variability shouldn't always be the same thing. There are times when it's really beneficial to have a low heart rate variability. There are times when it's beneficial to have a high heart rate variability. What's your baseline? This app doesn't come with instructions. Do you test your baseline when you're fatigued? Do you test it when you're completely fresh? Do you test it when you're in training? So now I'm wondering, well, is this actually measuring anything of importance? And then C, even if it was, I know a lot about this stuff. I'm not an exercise physiologist. I can't interpret that data. And I don't think that that data is going to be any more helpful than when I wake up in the morning and get out of bed. How do I feel? Am I flat? Am I grumpy? Like, to me, those are the things that, that, that most athletes ought to be measuring. Um, so I think that the pendulum, and I don't mean just to pick on heart rate variability. I think this is across the board. I think it was probably in the 70s and the 60s when, and even in the 80s, when triathlon and other endurance sports really blossomed, it was a lot of artistic training. And we know that purely artistic training isn't great either, but I feel like the pendulum has swung so much in the direction of science and measure and objectivity um, that I believe it ought to swing back to a more neutral place. Uh, the second thing, and then I'll shut up and, and let you talk because I'm very curious to hear your thoughts as well. The second thing uh, that I like to think about with data is um, there's a model called the four levels of competence. Yep. And at the bottom of that model, there's unconscious incompetence. And that means you don't know that you don't know what you're doing. No amount of data is going to help someone at that level. The level above that is conscious incompetence, which means that you are aware that you don't know what you're doing, but you still don't know what you're doing. No amount of data is going to help someone at that level. The third level is conscious competence, which means you have to think about what you're doing. But if you think about what you're doing, you're competent. I think that's where data can be really useful. But the trap is the top of the pyramid where great performance happens is unconscious competence when you don't even have to think and you are competent. And I think what happens with data is it holds a lot of people up between levels three and four. They can't break through because they're so tied to let, letting their watch or their heart rate strap or their power meter or whatever it is drive the ship that even though they could potentially break through to that level where they are just in the flow zone, they don't because they're scared to, because they're scared that they might go outside of their zone. It, it is, uh, it, it, it's exactly that. We call it shackled by the metric. So yep. l let me preface this. I'll give you my thoughts on it very briefly. I think that uh, measuring is fantastic tracking and it provides uh, some objective analysis in all sorts of areas around performance. Uh, at the same time, it, to echo onto your point that you say there, it can be the thing that actually dilutes a critical part of components, which is what I label as the inner animal. And um, and that like sits that. up at the top where you are so in tuned. In fact, if you talk, sort of talk about getting into a state of flow and all of the other stuff into the zone, that can only occur by ultimately unshackling the, the inner animal in many ways. And in fact, a person that I'm sure that you know, Sami Inkinen, that I've coached for many, many years, there isn't a better version or example of uh, of the quantified self. He's, he's tracked every element of his life from sleep, weight, nutrition, 
uh, mood. Of course, all of the metrics around sporting performance, power, heart rate, pace, etc., etc., for many, many years. At the same time, what he's managed to achieve on this is he's used this to draw lessons objectively over the year, over the years and seasons. But I have met very few people that are as good as him at going on feel and actually mm. allowing the inner animal to express himself. So in my mind, and you know, I, I am a, a coach that doesn't prescribe very strictly by this exact power or this exact pace. And instead, I want the athlete to understand the why first, to understand what the intent of the intervals or the session is, if we're going to keep it athletic for a while. And so they understand what they're trying to achieve out of it, what it should feel like and what the intention of it is. And then they pursue that. And aligned and parallel, they have a gauge or an understanding of where we think we're going to have the pace fall out, the power fall out, the heart rate mm -hmm. fall out. And we use that in flight as information that then you can, if it is useful, you can maybe draw off of it. But most importantly, post-training or post-race, yep. we can actually have a review and say, well, this is what you felt, but what was actually happening there. And then, then it becomes really powerful. And yeah. so, so I'm very much like you. I think it is, uh, it ultimately, in fact, a great quote, a great quote by someone you mentioned earlier, Brett Sutton, who said, uh, you know, in, in triathlon, we're not building a bridge. This is physiology. And ultimately, I think that's the case. No matter how good data gets, it is still so much of unknown because we're dealing yeah. with the human body. Yeah. It, you know, it, it, Yes, I, I I don't want to bridge us like too far off course, but I think that very similar to the the rise of the quantified self movement, and I pause because this is a rabbit hole, is that this movement of like hacking and life hacking, and I say it's similar in the sense that it is it's taking very 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 complex systems, and instead of admitting this is a complex system, we don't know everything about it there's a lot of ambiguity. It says, oh, if you just take this supplement or if you just do this workout, you're going to nail whatever it is that you're going after. Health, aging, uh, the body weight. And we know that that's nonsense because you can't have a, a, such a simple solution to a very complex system. Um, and, and to me, that's somewhat similar to when data is misused, right? When data is kind of the silver bullet for these complex systems, that's when I think people can fall into traps. Um, whereas what I heard you saying, and I guess this is the, the old McKinsey consultant in me going back to a framework, it sounds like you and your athletes use data to vacillate between conscious competence and unconscious competence. And it's almost like data helps prime someone to be able to get into the flow zone. So you use it as information, but you really ultimately trust your body most. Well, it, it also becomes, and I would argue with many physiologists around this, because you talk about uh, you talk about data like that, and so many people prescribe training off of some functional threshold or something like that that was created one day in January, and now that yeah. is going to define specificity in training for the next number of weeks. But the one thing that is not considered, and this includes tracking stress globally as well, Yep. Uh, you know, with 
things like TSS score and components like that, which endurance athletes, many endurance athletes will understand when you're measuring training stress. Yeah, that's really useful. But what about life stress? What about the components of the other stress that comes in? And you have to create mechanism and tools to say, look, whether it's uh, lack of sleep, whether it's some poor nutrition habits, whether it's an argument with the spouse, whatever it might be, we all have to manage stress. And on, on top of that, we are integrating training stress and that becomes and and i think it's very very difficult in fact as of yet as of now it is impossible to rely solely on data to create the recipe of that uh now my my next phrase by the way so this is a little scary was going to be and you didn't know these words in advance is life hacking so uh um and and i agree with you apart from my latest detox and cleanse that's wonderful and that's going to help me but um say more about that (laughs) trust me i have no detox and i have no cleanse (laughs) trust me (laughs) that is british humor but um uh, so, yeah, I absolutely agree. And in fact, the only other thing I'll say onto life hacking so that we can move along is, is we all, if you actually, we always talk about, but if you talk, if you listen to any great coach, they're always going to focus in on words like patience, consistency, mm-hmm. the journey, uh, using my own words. But, you know, there are, there are different parallels of those words, but we always talk about this long journey, layering and progression patience and consistency being the magic words and i think it's whenever there's that phrase hacking i think there's a a cause to run away in uh for the most part and i know it sells and i know it's sexy but uh but ultimately it's in my mind it's not truth i agree the, the values in the journey another tidbit and and this is not i i wish i remember where i read this so i could give him or her credit but i don't i read this years ago and it's really stuck with me And that is anytime someone feels very passionately that they have the solution to something, you ought to ask them, how might they be wrong? And if they give you a really good answer, then you should believe them. But if they say that they can't be wrong or they they kind of nod off or or not nod off, but kind of set aside that question, then you run the other direction. Because a really good, thorough thinker will get just as excited about explaining all the ways they might be wrong about something as explaining how they're right. Um, so I, I mean, I have the privilege of interviewing all these people and it's very easy for me to tell when someone is just selling something because I ask them how they might be wrong and they're dumbfounded. Whereas you ask a really rigorous thinker or scientist, how might they be wrong? And they'll talk your ear off for 30 minutes. I always say in coaching, whenever you feel like you've got all the answers, then it's time to retire because you're just about to fall behind. But uh, (laughs) it's it's closed box thinking. And uh, okay, my my last one, because I want to I want to hit this word and uh, and then we're going to move on to the last piece of the conversation. But my last word, I'm I'm interested in this word. And I deliberately chose a word that is one that I don't use very much, but but I think it's going to echo with you. Routine. Mm hmm. So what comes to mind, I'm supposed to, sorry, I kind of forgot here. I'm supposed to say what comes to mind, right? Yeah. So what comes to mind with routine is setting some constraints around otherwise utter chaos. So life is utter chaos. There's so much unpredictability. We like to think that we're in control of things, but there's actually very little that we control on a macro scale. Yeah, on a micro scale, your day-to-day there is a fair amount that you can control. And I think routine helps build a sense of control into the day. 
And that type of control and consistency can help elicit great performance. It's very, very, very hard to reach your best at anything if you wake up every morning and you're not sure what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. Now, the flip side is, I think being overly rigid and too routinized, that can also be a trap because then when things don't go well or something does force you to break out of your routine, you're kind of broken. Um, so again, it's, it's, it depends. I think that lots of people could benefit from more routine, but some people, probably myself included, could actually benefit from releasing from routine a little bit. It's, it's interesting. We always uh, we talk about the, the key of specificity, but behind that specificity, I always talk about life is not a spreadsheet. So life mm. is this living, breathing, dirty thing. And, uh, and so we, we encourage athletes. In fact, we set up training programs, uh, to say a second part of the prescription is maintaining a dynamic mindset. So you're trying to create specificity with key components of training in every single week that you want to retain. At the same time, you need to apply that with a dynamic mindset. And, and that is supported with a word that I think parallels it. It's not the same, but parallels it, which is habits and having mm. these key supporting habits that, and, and again, that, that sort of, there's some fluidity in, in habits. There's a level of automation that comes with habits. Yeah. There's things that you do, but they are for me as a, as a coach, the critical elements that support the pursuit. And for most of mine is athletic pursuit. So, that includes habits around sleep, habits around fueling, habits around hydration, all of those sort of critical supplements. But they become routine in a way. And then the actual training program, which is the specificity, the thing that's going to drive you forward, that has to be dynamic. It cannot be about the accumulation of training hours. That cannot be the barometer of success or the accumulation of miles. Because if you start with that, you're going to break because of the way that life inevitably is. So, um, so that resonates as an answer. I like that. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to come back to you, and uh, and I think it would be folly of me not to take the chance to talk about this. And and I am assuming that you're comfortable talking about this. You recently wrote an article for Outside Magazine, of course, and and it was very much about you. It was about your struggle with uh, with mental illness, which was uh, which relatively recent thing, and and from it, uh, it stemming from a panic attack that led to very rare form of OCD called Pure O, if I, if I remember right. I'd never heard of Pure O. So, so I want to investigate, if you're comfortable with it, investigate it a little bit. Uh, and so I guess I should check, are you comfortable talking about this? I'm, I assume you are. Yeah, yeah. Not, never my favorite thing to talk about, but definitely important. Um, so yes, let's do it. Okay. So, so, so what were the initial signs and symptoms? And I guess so, when were they as well? Yeah, so I... I was in New York City during, doing media for the book. Um, this was in August of last year. And had done a long run in Central Park, um, midday, I'd say, and underfueled after the run. So really didn't eat much of anything, I think like a cliff bar, um, for no other reason than I was in a rush and being stupid. And was meeting a friend for dinner that night and thought that, or at least I thought I was meeting a friend for dinner that night, but it turned out we were actually uh, just going to a bar where all they had was drinks. So I had a stiff drink, maybe some kettle chips, uh, if I remember right. And then I started to feel like just something was off. And I, I told my friend, it was like 9.30, I better get back to the hotel. I think my blood sugar's low. Um, by the time I made it back to the hotel, 
uh, and I was all alone uh, in the hotel room. I, my heart was like beating out of my chest. My ears were ringing. And I had just assumed, you know, blood sugar, blood sugar. So I very quickly had a Snickers bar, some apple juice, just quick sugars. Um, but it didn't get better. It just kept on escalating. And eventually I was able to calm down. Uh, I spoke at length with my younger brother who's finishing up medical school. And he was very quickly able to say, like, it sounds like you're actually you know, probably had low blood sugar, but now you're just having a panic attack. Um, calm down. But then the next morning I woke up and the symptoms kind of returned. And um, over the next two weeks, I just felt not right. And I had all kinds of medical workups, uh, particularly like looking for a heart arrhythmia, um, something wrong with my adrenal system. And, and they all came back negative. And that's when eventually I was diagnosed at first uh, with something called panic disorder which is just this feeling and the sensation of panic, like something's wrong. Um, things started to get really, yeah, after that diagnosis, things got a lot better. Uh, for a good three weeks, I'd say, I was pretty much symptom-free. And then uh, one day on a long car ride alone, just completely out of nowhere, I became incapacitated with just awful thoughts. Thoughts like you should drive off the road, your family won't care if you drive off the road. Um, out of completely nowhere. It was a, a beautiful day. I was actually going to meet friends for a trail running trip. Hmm. And I knew somewhere deep down inside that these thoughts made no sense, but they were also accompanied by like this deep pit in my stomach, just a feeling of complete tear and emptiness. Um, and there was nothing I could do to get them to go away. I mean, this, these were the by far the worst four hours of my life, just so painful. Um, I didn't know if I should drive off the road to go to a hospital, if I should pull over and call 911. Uh, I was just completely paralyzed. So I, I did finally make it home, um, really tough car ride. And I told my wife, like, I, something's definitely wrong with me. Like, I need help. And then very quickly got in to see a psychiatrist. Um, and it was at that point that I was diagnosed with, like you said, this very rare disorder called Pure O. And uh, Pure O is a form of obsessive compulsive disorder without visible compulsions. So people tend to think they hear OCD, at least I did in the past. And you think of someone that has to wash their hands all the time, or that's constantly cleaning up their house. And yeah, while those exactly. are forms of OCD, um, OCD is just simply an obsession and it tends to latch on to the things that people care most about. Um, so people that have cleanliness OCD, they tend to be clean freaks. I certainly don't have that problem, but for me, it's my health and kind of my sense of like meaning in life and eternal optimism. So I became obsessed with the opposites of those things. So what if my life is meaningless? Um, and like, what if my health is failing? And how they differentiate OCD or this rare type of OCD PRO from something like major depressive disorder is those thoughts terrified me. So someone that is suffering from major depression that has that thought, that thought's kind of a relieving thought to them. Whereas to me, it brought on terror. Um, so received the diagnosis, um, felt better for like a day or two because I, at the point, like I, I, w I thought I might need to be institutionalized. I had no idea what was going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and very quickly, um, just committed to a plan of treatment. And it's interesting, I wrote in the story, I, I've literally written articles called like exercise in nature instead of SSRIs for anxiety and depression. Um, but I just had no idea what anxiety or depression 
could mean. Um, I thought I knew what it meant, but until I experienced something like this, I had no idea. So when a psychiatrist told me that he thought SSRIs would help, I literally said like, well, I have a stigma against them for no reason. I still probably will. And like, yes, like complete surrender, whatever you think will help me, I'll do. Um, so I started taking SSRIs and then I also have been committed to uh, something called cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah, I know it very well. A, a very evidence-based uh, type of therapy for depression and anxiety. And, and pure O is basically an anxiety disorder. Yep. Okay. It's, in, it's interesting. Now, now one thing, I, I, it seems like I, I was going to ask you about the journey to actually decide to seek help, but it seemed like, uh, and I applaud you for it, that you were, you were very actions-based when this came on. It, it all was a catalyst of a really, relatively um, uh, quick time frame that, that you've gone through this, at least in big scope. Um, I'd say three, really, like it was a, a five-week period, right? Two weeks of trying to figure out what was going on medically, then being told I have anxiety and kind of just feeling better. Like I was relieved, like, okay, nothing's wrong medically. Like this is just me being anxious. Symptoms went away. Um, and then on that car ride, I mean, there was no way that I wouldn't seek help. Like I just knew that something was so wrong. Um, it's so hard to try to explain in words an experience like that. But again, all I can say is imagine you're just driving down the road feeling fine and suddenly you're just hit with this wave of terror and this thought that you should drive off the road and completely out of nowhere. Um, so again, like it's, it's changed my perspective on mental illness. Like no amount of exercise is going to make that thought like, you know, suddenly better. Dissipate. Yeah, exactly. It's not the, the ultimate medicine, but you know, look, you wrote a book about performance and this, this might be a tough question, but you wrote a book about performance and yet here you are with your own struggles. Was that hard to reconcile? Did you go through a period where you had to sort of reconcile that and what were the emotions around that? Yeah, it's part of the reason that I wrote this story, to be to be quite honest. Um, there was a lot of cognitive dissonance in, in never embarrassment or shame. Um, I've always been a fairly progressive thinker, so I never like had a stigma against mental illness. I, I kind of accepted it was a real thing, even though, like I said, I had no idea just how devastating it could be. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't ashamed, but there would be times, and, and sometimes there still are, um, where I get emails from from fans, from people that want advice, and they're looking at me like I'm this guru that has all my shit together. And the it causes a lot, at least it caused me a lot of pain to open those emails on days when I was really in a hole. And here I am feeling like I'm losing my mind. And these people are asking me, you know, tell me about your journey. You, you're so perfect. How do you do it? And it felt just like completely disingenuous um, to myself, almost like I was living these parallel lives. So writing that story more than anything felt like just an enormous weight off of my shoulders. So I wouldn't have to pretend. And what I've come to realize, at least it's the story I'm telling myself, is that like there was no need to pretend in the first place. I don't think the two things are at odd. I think that you can have mental illness and still be an expert on performance. Um, you know, it's quite interesting. When I wrote that story, I got over like 350 uh, letters, and, and not letters as old school, but emails from people. And I was just dumbfounded by the number of very high-achieving individuals, um, both in sport and outside of sport, that wrote to me opening up about their own experience with OCD or anxiety. Um, and, I, and I think that it is, I don't think it's just a coincidence. Um, 
I think a lot of the same tendencies that create excellence, like the obsessive ability to push, uh, that same brain chemistry can take a wrong turn and, and create something very bad. Well, uh, I, I tell you what, that doesn't surprise me at all. And uh, I have to say, and I'm, I'm glad that he received those emails. And uh, But uh, that, that I think you're yeah, absolutely spot on with that. And you see it time and time again. Let, what, one last question on it, and then um, and then we'll wrap up, which is, uh, has, it, has the experience now, as you sort of, because you're always driving to... Um, to continue the journey on performance. So, has this has this experience over the last uh, the last year or so has it fueled a, a passion or a, or a vision or a shift at all on where you want to focus your energies from a writing standpoint, from an exploration standpoint? I think a little. Um, you know, I do think that I I. So it depends. I mean, I'm, I'm biting my tongue as I say this. Maybe not, because I really think when, when you and I have this conversation, I feel like we're really talking about human nature, and it's all a part of the package. Um, so maybe it's a slightly more holistic view um, to, I guess, what, what we might call performance, or maybe you'd say, I'm, I guess I'm more interested in human nature more broadly. Um, but I don't, I don't think it has necessarily changed the path. Like I don't see myself going and becoming like this advocate for mental health. I'll definitely do that. And that, that won't be my sole focus. Um, because I, I just think it's a piece of a broader, a broader puzzle. And and like I was saying, I, I do think that a lot of the same tendencies that can fuel like the relentless pursuit of excellence have. A, a dark side, and and there is some research that I've looked into already that that does indeed show that um, if the same neurochemicals are at play when someone gets completely hooked on training or building a business as when someone's in one of these obsessive thought patterns. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, here we go. We're going to throw some other stuff at you to finish. These are quick fire questions. We'll see whether you struggle with the very short answers as much as uh, your little compatriot Steve did. So these are quick five questions. There's just a few. And what you have to give is your just straight gut reaction. One word, one sentence. We'll fly through them and then we'll say, bid adieu. Okay? Let's do it. Lock in. Fasten your seatbelt. What's the biggest challenge time-starved high performers face? I'm not going to do any better than Steve. Themselves. Themselves. Good. All right. What's your number one performance habit to help daily energy? Uh, physical practice. Physical practice. You know what Steve's was? I think What's was, that? I think it was meditation. Ah, uh, he's lying. Yeah, he's definitely lying. <laughs> no, I'm he kidding. <laughs> um, actually, I think that was different for Steve. I think that was uh, Chris Winter. But anyway, okay, training. Listen to music, focus on the task, or troubleshoot work problems. It depends. It depends. All right. Wished, what do you wish you had more of? I mean, I'm going to sound corny, but love. Like, I think that the more love, the better. And I'm fortunate to have a lot, but always more. That is corny, but I love it. <laughs> Training. Fly solo or surround yourself with a crowd? Surround yourself with a crowd. All right, three more. Name one to two characteristics of an elite performer. Uh, drive and self-awareness. Drive and self-awareness. There you go. Two more. Who has been your biggest mentor, performance or not? 
Oof, I have to name one. I'm afraid so. It's tough for you. Yeah, this is tough. Well, they're both dead, and I would say Robert Persig, who wrote Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in the book Lila, and then George Leonard, who wrote a bunch of books, um, my favorite of which is called Mastery. Awesome. A bit more lighthearted one. Number one tip for travel. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Just don't do it ever. Just live in a box. No, no. Um, I, I dislike travel. My number one tip for travel, though, would be um, routine. So carry like carry something with you, and it doesn't have to be a physical object that you can do anywhere you are because that helps create a sense of predictability in home. There you go. That's a great answer. Brad? Thank you very much for joining us. Really uh, in-depth, interesting, very different conversation. And thanks for, uh, thanks for playing along with my little idea to go through the, the word exercise with me. Thank you, Matt. This was a blast. I feel like we could truly go on for hours. I know. We can, uh, we'll lock it off there and, and say goodbye. So, Brad, thanks so much for joining. And uh, we are going to add uh, one thing to this, which is a little cheat sheet on, uh, on performance so Brad's very kindly put together a sheet. You'll be able to find the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in performance and focused around the book, Peak Performance, with Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus, follow the link in the, uh, in the uh, show notes and um, you'll be able to read more. And, of course, go out, grab yourself a copy of the book if you don't have it. Thanks so much, Brad. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. Well, well, that was a discussion, wasn't it, folks? We went deep on performance there, and it all centered around just a few words. If you like what you heard, if it's piqued your interest, I really encourage you to go out and get Brad, and I should say Steve Magnus's book, Peak Performance. But also, if you want to just go to the show notes, click on the link, go through, grab the cheat sheet. It will give you more in-depth discussion around all aspects of performance. So that's the discussion for this week. We've got lots of good stuff coming up in the future weeks. But until next time, it's Matt Dixon signing off. Keep it real. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye.